Welcome to In Conversation with Ridouts. We have decided to put together um, a series of short talks to cover topics that our clients say they're interested in knowing a little bit more about. So these will appeal to health and social care providers with questions about processes and policy and how this might affect their service. Today, we're starting with the issue of registering the right support. It's a piece of CQC guidance that's having a huge impact on providers all over the country. I'm joined by my colleagues, Paul Ridout, Managing Director here at Ridouts, and Laura Payton, um, an Associate Solicitor. My name is Jenny Wilde, I'm also a Director, and I think we should just launch straight into our conversation. Um, people watching this who may not know anything about registering the right support, Paul, could you talk a little bit about what that issue is and how it's affecting our clients? Well, yes, Jenny, the registering the right support is the operational guidance which follows on from another guidance paper from government called Building the Right Support, which followed on from the scandals in residential care for people with learning difficulties, first of all in Cornwall and then in the infamous Winterbourne View and other cases which have come to light even quite recently. So the idea was that people from various places around the country accommodated in residential care were not being looked after very well and needed to be accommodated in more suitable person-friendly accommodation usually on a much smaller scale mm. and if you go with the CQC line in sort of urban communities rather than in the countryside which is something that CQC don't seem to think is appropriate for the care of those with learning difficulties I don't know what happened to choice but that's the background to registering the right support it's CQC statutory guidance, but that it only has to be taken into account by CQC and by those who are seeking to develop or improve facilities. It's not a binding statutory mm -hmm. document. I think it's maybe interesting just to think about the sort of difficult implementation that it had. CQC were criticised for almost rushing it out back in February 2016, I think it was, at which point they hadn't consulted properly, if at all. And I know that a number of providers and um, groups amongst the sector felt very strongly about it. It was eventually consulted on following them raising concerns and it was reissued in its current form in June 2017. But more recently this year, CQC have noticed and acknowledged that there are areas of it that require to be developed or better explained and they are in the process of revisiting it. What exactly that will look like we're not clear. They've just finished what they described as a scoping exercise where they had identified a number of questions that they think are the issues that need to be looked at again but they are looking for providers and stakeholders to engage with that. So things around the definition of congregate settings, campus style settings, um, numbers and size of service are issues that they've identified and they're certainly issues that we have dealt with in cases as being real hot topics for mm. providers so hopefully there will be some change in the offing but it's not exactly clear what the time frame is or whether there'll be any further consultation on the document. You alluded to a bumpy ride for this guidance and, mm. and some problems associated with it what, Paul, have been the issues that our clients have experienced? What impact has it had on the sector? It's had a huge impact because people who have spent many hundreds of thousands of pounds developing sites that they believed were appropriate mm. and which they knew 
were in demand for use and occupation were suddenly standing idle because they couldn't be used without registration and CQC were interpreting this guidance so as to seek to avoid to register almost anything. Now at the moment, virtually every case we've had, people have already spent the investment mm. on development, but we're just starting to see cases come about. Um, we've got one just come in where people are making the investment decision. Okay. And inevitably, many of those investment decisions will not happen. Mm -hmm. Lending banks won't lend. Um, private equity and institutional investors are not likely to invest in something that they see as a, with real barriers to entry mm. beyond that which exists from the registration process. Mm. I think that's right and I think it's important to note as well, I alluded to the guidance almost being rushed in at the, at the outset and at that time providers had no mechanism for getting in touch with CQC to say this is what I'm thinking about doing you know, is this likely to fit with the guidance or not? I mean, other than contacting the National Contact Centre, mm -hmm. where results or responses, I think, were a little bit variable and no one really knew how to deal with them. Since CQC have advised that they are going to review the guidance, you will see from their website they've also updated the information that they will give to providers specifically of learning disability services pre-application stage. They are now saying that if you have an idea for development or investment, you should contact CQC, they will give you expert advice, I believe they're saying, and, and information about whether or not it meets with the requirements. I think it's good that CQC are now opening a dialogue, if not maybe a little too late. However, for providers, I think they have to be aware of the potential almost conflict of interest. I mean, ultimately CQC are the people that are going to um, adjudicate on the application. Um, so that should be borne in mind, but also, and CQC's website says this as well, ultimately this pre-advice stage, they can't, they can't give you a concrete answer one way or the other about whether the application is likely to be granted. They can only do that once you've submitted your application, and obviously that has practical implications for providers who are seeking investment, etc. You know, banks will be looking mm. for something a bit more certain than that. Understandably. Mm. And Jenny, it, it, Sorry, it, yeah. it brings to into focus a problem with the whole registration system mm. in health and social care because there is no pre-qualification type of process upon which people can rely. Yeah. And so you actually have to make the decision to build it, to staff it, to commission it, to equip it and have people waiting to go in. Mm. And then you ask CQC to register it. And if they don't register it, of course, you are looking at a very expensive white elephant, mm. if I can use that expression. Absolutely. And that was going to be my next question, Paul. With providers doing that and taking that path, what impact is that actually having for people with learning disabilities as the actual service user? Well, I mean, I think we've, we've seen a real example of this recently. CQC earlier this year have issued their interim report on seclusion um, and there was a specific section around about people with learning disabilities who have been left in really unsuitable care and treatment centres in hospitals where the staff there just do not have the training mm -hmm. or the expertise to deal with people with profound learning disabilities or other, um, you know, other needs like autism, etc., who need specialist care. 
And that report identified one factor that people were being kept in these unsuitable areas of accommodation was the fact that there were no suitable alternatives in the community. Mm. But there's no mention in that report that part of the reason that there are no suitable alternatives in the community is that providers simply cannot get them registered. Now we're not talking about providers that are looking to develop multi-bedded sites you know, in rural areas. We've had a number of different cases where well-known, well-established providers that can provide good quality outcomes are looking to increase by maybe one or two, even three beds. Mm -hmm. And that's being said that, you know, that's not enough. In a lot of these cases, there are real people identified for these beds whose current care is perhaps not suitable for a number of reasons. And the main barrier that they can't move in to more suitable care is the fact that CQC will not register or are delaying the process. I think Perhaps Paul will come on to talk about it, but the actual registration process itself with registering the right support has become extremely protracted and lengthy and difficult for providers. And the real human cost to that is that people are left in unsuitable accommodation for much longer than they need to be. They are these people with learning difficulties, many of whom can move out into community-based environments that don't involve the delivery of 24-hour personal care, but there are a small number, it's about 3,000, who actually need that care, and CQC have set their face slightly against that. Mm. And so they are at the moment accommodated in things called, or premises establishments called ATUs, assessment and treatment centres, and those are really old-fashioned institutional mental health centres although they have a slightly posh name. And if people cannot find their way through into the type of community service that our clients are wanting to offer, they either have to stay in these most unsuitable places or they go back to a form of secure mental health, which is a backward step mm -hmm. and which is really distressing for them, but even more distressing for their families and loved ones who want something better for them and were promised it in the aftermath of the Winterbourne View scandal and it just hasn't happened and it does seem really very odd that CQC who are saying that they want to see a new method of person-centred care are actually the instrument of obstructing much of the development and may bring it to a grinding halt. Mm -hmm. Laura, you mentioned a couple of case studies and from the call face, can you mm -hmm. explain a little bit more about how we can help clients in what seems to be a really frustrating situation. Yeah, I mean, I think frustration is the key word that sums it up, Jenny, and we've had numerous providers get in touch with us from the, from the outset of this guidance coming into force, where it seems like, to be quite honest, that different sections within CQC and different areas within the sector just don't really know what to do with it. Mm -hmm. There's no consistent answer. But because of that, it has meant that applications become delayed now. If a provider was coming to me at the outset before they've made their application, I would be advising them to make it clear, um, demonstrably clear with evidence in their application, how they have had regard to the Registering the Right Support guidance yeah. and how they can further the principles and deliver good outcomes for people. However, I've had other clients get in touch with me at various stages through the process. A number of these have supplied that evidence as part of their application, but CQC have pushed back and said it's not enough. A key factor that I've seen in all of these cases, and I can say that absolutely, is, is delay. 
So I think, um, I can't remember what CQC's KPI is, and perhaps you'll remember, or in relation to processing registration applications, but all of these registering the right support cases that I've been involved with are well outside that. I think it's normally, they say around six to 12 weeks, yeah. don't they? And it varies so yeah. hugely. Yeah, I mean, I think it's always a bit variable, but that's the target. But essentially what seems to be happening is that the application goes in, the site visit happens, a notice of proposal is issued to refuse. And that notice of proposal, providers have 28 days to respond and provide representations. Mm -hmm. So answers to the questions that CQC have, have, have asked. Frustratingly for some of my clients, the thing has been that they have supplied that information as part of the application, but CQC have come back to say, you know, that's not enough, or to ask questions that are perhaps out with the realm of the application process. Mm -hmm. uh, I, one peculiarity that we've seen is that, <clears throat> so what should usually happen is that CQC would issue your notice of proposal, you'd make your representations, and they would then move to a notice of decision. Now that decision is either to register the service or not. And if that decision is not to register, then you would have 28 days to appeal to the Care Standards Tribunal, who would make a decision. But what is happening in a number of these cases is that CQC are looking at the notice of proposal representations. They are then responding to providers and saying, we're not going to adopt that proposal and refuse to register, but what we're going to do is send it back to the registration team. And what's happening is that it's going through the process again a new proposal is being issued and it's ultimately delaying the provider the opportunity to have a final determination of their case. So starting the whole process all over. Yeah, and the thing that's frustrating about it is that CQC are repeatedly asking for the same information or for details that are not necessarily relevant to registration or, even worse, further down the line when a provider has said, well, do you know what, I am going to appeal against this decision because I think I've provided that information. CQC are then turning around and saying, well, we, we need to come back out and look at the service again. When they've already been out on a registration site visit, they should have been looking at all of these aspects as part of that. And then the providers left in the tribunal process to bear the cost and bear the expense, bear the delay, bear the risk that they've taken on in relation to their investment. And all the while, we've got families sitting outside waiting for these provision. I mean, we've seen, it's been really talked about at the start of this year, how the transforming care agenda hasn't, it just hasn't worked. And part of the reason again for that is that there's not suitable alternative accommodation. And again, we're seeing multiple people in the learning disabled community placed in really unsuitable placements way outside um, of their home locality. Sometimes parents are having to travel two, three hours a day to see them. Um, so it is, it's, it's really difficult, it's frustrating for providers and a number of providers along the way have said it's just no longer financially viable for us to continue to challenge this because we've had this empty service sitting mm -hmm. for such a long time. Just to sum up, I'm aware that I've spoken quite a lot about that, but in relation to the areas that CQC are now looking to review in the guidance, these are the issues that have come up as contentious issues at the tribunal. So the definition of a congregate or a campus setting, um, the number of service users, it seems to be that there's a there's certainly in recent months the idea has been that if there's anything above six people, CQC won't register that. Notwithstanding the fact that their own guidance says that they, the registering the right support itself says that we will not consider six mm. as as the absolute benchmark. And if you can demonstrate that you meet the principles, then they should adopt a measure of flexibility. But it's that real lack of flexibility and lack of application of any discretion, if you want to put it in legal terms, it seems to almost be absolute that they are saying more than six, we're not having it. Whereas 
there's a desperate need in the community for these services to be registered, mm. so something needs to change. Paul, Laura's said something quite disturbing there about the way that CQC are just recircling these applications. What, what's your view on that? doesn't sound right to me. Well, I regard it as with, with some horror because the CQC have their job to do, they have a role to play, they should really be inspecting facilities against a set of benchmarks. Mm -hmm. They've, they have absolutely clearly decided that they're going to try and shape and mould the market as opposed to looking at whether facilities meet the basic requirements. After all, Jenny, when people are going to be admitted into these relatively small facilities or very small facilities, they won't be admitted unless they're individually carefully assessed and care plan managed. Mm -hmm. So we're, my view is that CQC have decided not to register anything as a matter of principle. And they've also decided that they don't wish to spend loads and loads of money, public money, on tribunals that they can't control because CQC does like to control the process. Mm -hmm. And the tribunal is not controlled by CQC. If, but you're talking about somewhere between 60 and 100,000 pounds. People have spent maybe 300, 350,000 pounds on the development, another 60 to 100,000 pounds, and the loss. Mm. And I have a case where they've actually turned down five. Wow. Um, and they're starting to say, we expect people to be all out in the community living with what they choose to call ordinary community people. And so when a client says to me, as we've had recently, just tell me what I have to do to get through this. We can't do that because we don't know. So we at CQC will probably refuse anything and everything that comes along mm -hmm. and see how far people will go. I think just going back to what Paul has said about the expectation of, or what CQC's expectation of what they will register and the idea that it should all fit with the national model and that, that is small community-based settings close to local amenities. A real frustration that providers have had that I have dealt with is that is the lack of acknowledgement by CQC or almost the denial of choice to the service user group. It's almost like saying to you, you know, you're from a certain area, you must want to live in a certain type of housing. You know, anyone can choose to live in any, any manner, any different type of housing setting. And the way that CQC is constraining the application of this guidance is to say that everybody that's got a learning disability or autism wants to live in small community-based settings. And it's just not correct. I mean, I absolutely accept that we need to move away and, and more recent scandals have underlined this. We must move away from the institutionalised setting, you know, accept that that's not appropriate. But, and I also accept that small community-based settings will work for a number of people with learning disabilities and autism and, and they will achieve good outcomes. But there are such a range of needs and there are such a range of um, things that have to be considered. Mm -hmm. And quite often the people that are developing the services around these people's needs will be the, the providers. They know this service <coughs> user group, but because it doesn't fit this national model, CQC won't register it. And I think that's that's the thing that's most frustrating. Um, and, and the thing that's most worrying for the, the learning <coughs> disabled community, to be honest, is that CQC are just taking away that choice mm. um, for, for people with learning disabilities and autism. Well, it's not compatible, is it, with, with what CQC purports to promote, which is individual rights and, mm. and person-centred care. care. 
I mean, it couldn't be further from person-centred to say that everybody in a particular sector should live in a certain type of accommodation. I mean, there is, and, and this is the ironic thing, the guidance recognises that there is no one-size-fits-all approach. They are all on a case-by-case -case basis, but CQC appear to be adopting a one-size-fits-all approach to refusing applications and a refusal to apply any sort of sensible discretion. And it is coming into a crisis point. It's, in, it's interesting at the beginning of this year to see how much is in the news about social care and the problems and lack of funding is one thing, but lack of availability of accommodation, particularly in this service user group, learning disability and autism, is a big factor. It's a big factor why transforming care hasn't worked. It's a big factor in why people are still experiencing seclusion and segregation in hospitals. And yet no one seems to be shining a spotlight on the fact that the real bottleneck is at the registration stage and something has to be done about that and whilst I think it's great that CQC are consulting on the guidance or thinking about amending it there is a, there's no there's no sort of time frame there's no end date there's no comfort to providers who and a number of our clients have gone through this process to one point or another and have just said look do you know what it's not it's not financially viable for us to invest in the sector and they're moving on and that can only have a detriment um, to the people that really need the care that these providers could offer. Mm. I think what we've discussed amounts to almost a national scandal, Paul. Mm. I think to summarise what we've chatted about today, what would you advise people who are thinking about embarking on either changing an existing service well, or I have starting advised, one? I have advised people to think very carefully about mm. it and to, be, and to have <coughs> £300,000 available to invest in a hopeless scheme. Mm and people are not going to do that. CQC have expressed the view that if they remain firm, then people will invest in what CQC want to see. The first trouble with that is none of us know what they want to see. Mm -hmm. So they might be right if they were clear about what they wanted to see. Um, the, the other thing about it is somebody has got to pay for it. Mm -hmm. Learning People with learning difficulties are almost exclusively paid for by cash-strapped local authorities. The cost of caring for somebody in a residential learning difficulty centre is not less than £2,000 a week, maybe more. Yeah. Um, in fact, one of my clients has no difficulty getting £10,000 a week for high-level acuity. So, there, But if you're going to take £2,000 a week, and the normal reflection would be that CQC's expectation about staffing levels and not transferring staffing of a specialist nature from site to site is that the cost might go from 2000 to 4500 Well, that's got to be paid for out of the budget of a local authority. And we've seen comments quite recently on television that local authorities, social services departments looking after vulnerable adults do not have the money to bear that sort of cost, but they would be keen to have this excellent social care in a residential setting for smaller numbers. Mm. Nobody wants to see 40, 50, 60 bedded homes, although there are many such still there. Mm. Nobody, wants to, nobody wants to see that going forward. But if there's no alternative, it's secure mental health or local authorities having to find the money they don't have. So as Laura says, it's a real logjam. It's also I read some interesting comments just I think on social media recently and thinking about the cost 
in relation to the model that CQC would like and I believe that is more sort of supported living in smaller scale settings but a number of people that work with service users of these type of settings are saying that model doesn't actually work for the service user themselves, a number of whom receive benefits to pay for certain things like bills etc and the very fact of them having carers in all of the time and using services and being in and out of the property means that they have bills that are so high that they, their benefits don't cover that. So even you know, looking, taking the provider perspective to one side and looking at the service user perspective and whether or not supported living really is the correct model for everyone, I don't, I don't, think, that's, I don't think that's correct. Well, if it's true supported living, it, it will be a service that does not, is not registrable at all. Mm because it's not providing personal care, which is now seen to be what you might call touching care, um, feeding, toileting, dressing, that sort of thing, or prompting combined with supervision for those, those services. If that's not happen, if that is happening, it's actually residential care, mm-hmm. whatever you call it. And if it's, and it's not supported living. And there are just this very small cohort we think it's about 3,000 at the moment, people who are caught in this logjam. <clears throat> but it's being added to by around about 300 to 400 a year. So if the logjam isn't eased, we'll see that 3,000 grow slowly and over a 10-year period it will double. Mm. Well, thank you both. That's been really interesting and I know that a lot of people watching this will will be worrying about what the future holds and I guess we will have to wait and see what CQC's own guidance will will develop like Mm -hmm. or how they will consult on that. So thank you Laura, thank you Paul. Um, Thank you Thank you, You're welcome. Thank you for tuning in to the first instalment of our In Conversation with Readouts. If you want to you can keep your eye out for further instalments. We're going to be covering topics like the CMA, the tribunal process, CQC inspections, So look out for those. If you want to follow us on social media, you can follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or you can just drop us an email or give us a call if you have any problems that we can help you with in terms of your health and social care provision. So thank you all.